Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on civil and religious liberty. And we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Ken Sano. Mr. Sano, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Now, can I address you by your first name? Is that fine? Absolutely. Now, Ken, can you tell us a little something about yourself and what you do? What I do? Well, I do lots of things. I've uh, done many things in my life that I'm proud of. And and one of them is being an environmental activist. Another one is being an activist for uh, freedom of expression, freedom uh, to state one's mind and one's feelings about something without being incarcerated, without being uh, punished by the law. And that's part of being American. I'm an accomplished musician at times <laughs> when I practiced. And uh, I have a bachelor's degree in biology uh, from Loma Linda University. And I did not go to medical school like my father had wanted me to. My father was a doctor, an MD, a general surgeon, and later a uh, family physician. My parents and my grandparents define me, the way I think, the way I feel about certain sociological issues. And my grandfather was a prominent Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Japan who uh, suffered tremendous uh, religious uh, persecution he was thrown into jail for almost three years for professing his faith and uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, he wrote about that. He was one of the most uh, prolific surviving Adventist pastors uh, of his generation in Japan. Now, a lot of uh, prolific Japanese ministers died during that time, during World War II. And um, that was a shame because there were many, many uh, wonderful men that uh, that were just cut down by the uh, Japanese Imperial Army and uh, that uh, uh, government itself. So you're a third generation Seventh Avenue, is that correct? Correct, through my father. Through my mother's line, I'm a second generation Adventist. Do you know how your family became Seventh Avenue? My grandfather, his name is Eikichi Seino, he was a teacher in Japan. Uh, this is a long time ago, about the turn of the century, sometime in the late 1800s, in going into the 1900s. And uh, for some reason, he came into contact with uh, Pastor Granger, it was a Dr. Granger, and uh, Dr. Granger was there because uh, he was in an advanced group of Adventist missionaries that wanted to find, first of all, to spread the gospel, but then second of all, to find young men that were interested in pursuing it to the next degree by becoming ordained ministers in the Adventist faith. And my grandfather, Eikichi, was one of the first to stand up and say, yeah, that's that's me. I want to do this. And uh, they were warned that they could uh, meet with uh, considerable persecution. But these brave men, I have a photo of about 30 of them. I should give it to you sometime so you can you can transfer it to your your materials. But about 30 of these gen gentlemen around the turn of the century, around 19 or maybe a little before that even, 
in a group photo, it shows all these men dressed in black kimonos and, uh, um, they all became Adventist ministers for the SDA church and they participated in many camp meetings. I have photos, old photos of these camp meetings too, where you can see the tents behind them when they would go evangelizing the whole neighborhood in Japan. <laughs> Amazing. And, um, through that, my grandfather became a, a superintendent of the Seventh-day Adventist church based in Kyushu. And when the war broke out, he was, uh, arrested and uh, accused of, um, spreading, uh, mistrust amongst the Japanese people for their leadership, for the leadership of their uh, superiors, the, uh, the army, so to speak, because he was preaching that, uh, <laughs> get this, he was preaching that Japan will not win the war. And they say, why will Japan not win the war? Because, he, and my grandfather quoted a text from the Bible that said, all nations shall bow down to the, to the King of glory, Jesus Christ. And nations mean nothing to the Lord. And this just incited the uh, Japanese Imperial Army to, you know, they, they, they got, they got really upset by this and they so they came down to arrest him and asked him if he said this stuff and my grandfather says yes i said this stuff <laughs> so they arrested him and for almost three years he was made to uh subsist in a prison that he couldn't even stand up in it was so small and he was he shared it with 30 other men and it was full of lice and disease and, and they had to be, have food brought to them by their relatives and forced through the bars of the jail in order to live because the prison was basically a starvation zone where they, they they'd kill them by starvation. And, um, my grandfather somehow survived, but many of the Japanese ministers that he was ordained with died. And, and he writes about it, uh, in a, a short article from many years ago, 1946, I think, was his uh, article about his treatment during the war. Yet, uh, he says it was all worth for the for the case of for the cause of uh, witnessing for his Lord. Now, what's interesting is, is that while your grandfather was imprisoned in Japan, my mm -hmm. great grandfather was imprisoned in Korea at the same time for being Seventh Avenues. Is that right? I didn't know that. It seems like the Japanese Empire at that time was really forcing Shintoism within the Japanese territories because Korea at that time was a Japanese colony. And so mm. we see this kinship of Adventists no matter where we lived, we went through the same persecution. That's powerful to, to realize. Yeah, the Japanese Imperial Army uh, regarded Christianity as a, a very nefarious way to control Japanese minds and turn them and make them um, sympathetic towards the West. And that's exactly what uh, the Japanese uh, government did not want. And so they <laughs> tried to nip it in the bud. So now, how did your family arrive in the United States? This is interesting. My father was uh, about uh, in his early 20s when he was uh, called before the draft board in Japan. And uh, he, my father was, of course, a devout Adventist. He did not want to go to, to another country and kill people. Um, so he 
he went before the draft board and uh, they asked him uh, what the problem was. He was saying that he wanted to be a conscientious objector and they say, we don't have such a thing here in, in Japan. They said, why don't you want to go out and fight for your nation, fight for your emperor? And he said, I can't kill people. It's impossible for me to pull the trigger and kill a person. And uh, they said, well, here, let's put it this way. If you were in a room and a man was holding a, a knife to your mother's throat and you had the opportunity to kill that man with a gun, why wouldn't you do it? Or would you do it? He said, I could not do it. They said, oh, you mean you're saying that you would let that man kill your mother? Oh, that has to happen. Unfortunately, I would not be able to stop it because I would not kill him. And they said, you're, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> and they said, no one has ever come in here and said that. And uh, so they, they told him, we're going to find a way to draft you. And so my father, upon the uh, advice of his uncle, who was also an Adventist uh, minister, his name was, last name was Miyake. I think his first name was Shohei, Shohei Miyake. That was my um, grandmother's brother. He, and he, who, he was an Adventist, and he gave my um father some advice he said you get you get out of japan right away you go to the united states and you 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 try to work through your education there he had already graduated from a japanese uh, i think it was uh sang iku gakuen uh, in japan and uh my, my father got on a boat and he sailed to the united states in uh 1939 and uh he uh, matriculated at uh, Madison College in Tennessee, a Seventh-day Adventist college. And uh, he studied there, got uh, two degrees, one in, in uh, chemistry, one in uh, business. And uh, basically, he was there until the war ended. And then he applied to Loma Linda University and got accepted and uh, rode his Cushman motor scooter all the way from Tennessee to uh, Loma Linda, and then uh, he graduated from Loma Linda University School of Medicine. At that time, it was called CME, College of Medical Evangelists. The interesting thing is that there was a man who graduated before my father from Loma Linda. His name was Nobuo Tatsuguchi, and I hope that you can do a story on him sometime, because his story is absolutely mind-boggling he was an adventist too drafted not by the united states but he was drafted by the japanese imperial army during world war ii and he did not want to fight he did not want to fight especially americans who were his brothers in arms <laughs> not not in arms but his uh, uh um philosophical brothers um do you do you know the story of nobuo tatsuguchi no i don't can you please share with us yeah, sure. Noble, there's a book, which I have in my library right now, um, which your students really should read. It's, it's incredible, the story. It was just published a couple of years ago. It's called Storm on Our Shores. That's the name of the book. Uh, it was just published a couple of years ago. It's about uh, Nobuo Tatsuguchi, who was a Seventh-day Adventist doctor, and uh, he identified as being an American. Uh, he went to Japan to marry his longtime sweetheart, 
And he was planning on coming back to the United States, but they, they nabbed him and said, no, no, you're going to be a, a surgeon for the Japanese Imperial Army. And they mistrusted him uh, in, immensely because he w- was educated in the West and they had felt that he became um, brainwashed by the Americans to be sympathetic toward their cause. And they sent him to the island of Atu in Alaska, where they were invading the United States from the north. And this is pretty early in war. And uh, to make a long story short, America sent thousands of uh, American soldiers to squash this invasion that Japan had made upon American soil. And in the process, they, they killed basically everybody there because none of the Japanese would surrender. And one of them was Nobutatsuguchi. And uh, he maintained during his whole army career up there that he was an Adventist. He was a Christian. He quoted the Bible. He wrote a diary, a journal. And in that journal, he quotes the Bible uh, many, many times. And one of the things that he quoted was uh, choose life uh, if you're given the choice between life and death, choose life. In other words, choose salvation, choose redemption through Jesus Christ. And uh, those were his last words. And he was, the next day, uh, he was he was in a dugout, you know, a foxhole, and uh, an American soldier lobbed a grenade in there and killed all eight men in that foxhole. So uh, this book goes through the whole it, it it tells his his death the, the story of his death from different perspectives there was the man who lobbed that grenade uh he actually met uh noble's widow and uh it's an amazing story you gotta read this book it's incredible and it tells about uh he's in a conundrum because he's he's fighting against the nation that he loves but that's what uh, loyalty and patriotism is all about. You know, just like the man that's fighting for the United States in, in his patriotism, yet he's killing people over there. Um, of course, Noble wasn't fighting. He wasn't carrying a gun, but uh, he was looked upon as an officer and therefore uh, somehow, you know, uh, responsible for his actions. I don't know if you want to include this in your story, but the Adventist Church actually looked very dimly upon Nobuo Tatsuguchi's uh, family, and they gave them... <laughs> the church persecuted uh, my uncle uh, uh, Miyake, and they made him feel very um, responsible for being related to to a man that was in a war with the United States. I don't know how anybody could come up come up with that uh, vilification you know somehow that through osmosis elder miyake was somehow responsible no you know but that's how the world was at that time they they like to paint in black and white rather than in in shades of gray now that's me editorializing but uh, uh, my uncle Miyake and his wife uh, were made to feel like second-class citizens at the time, during, you know, just post-war, World War II, and I thought that was very unfair. But, you know, thank goodness 
that kind of climate has changed and people see it more as, you know, when, when there's a war, it's usually brother against brother, you know, like the first world war, there were, there were brothers on, on the German side and, and on the British side and they were killing each other. You know, war is not ever a good idea. And that's the way I feel about, uh, today's climate, you know, we, we can't choose war. We can't choose to uh, send our soldiers across the, the ocean and, and, and feel like it's the uh, noble thing to do. War is not noble. No, war is ugly. War is evil. And uh, that's what's colored my my zeitgeist, my, um, I'm sorry, my Weltanschauung, my my view of the world is, you know, over these years, you know, now I'm, now I'm an old man. When, when I was young, I thought war was somehow noble. No, war is not noble. It's not noble at all. Okay, end of speech. <laughs> now, listening to your dad's story, he was practically the Desmond Doss of Japan, the way that I'm hearing it, that he chose his faith over patriotism for his nation. <laughs> which is a powerful testimony. Oh, sure. He, well, he did not want to carry a gun. He did not want to go to war. But so uh, he came to the United States, and uh, he, he was always a really bright kid. Uh, my, my auntie uh, Taiko, who was married to Nobuo Tatsuguchi, she told me stories about his uh, amazing mind, there was a newspaper in Japan that would have puzzles, mental puzzles, and he would frequently get their answers right. And he was just a boy, you know, going against many brilliant minds that were trying to figure out these puzzles in the newspaper. And he, he would beat them out and, and find the answer to the puzzle. She said he was really good at that. So with this brilliant mind, he came to the United States. And, uh, yeah, he was a devout Adventist. And his original plan was to come back to Japan and be a medical missionary, just like Ellen G. White's book, Medical Missionary. My mom kind of put a stop to that. She said, I'm not going to Japan where I can barely speak the language. She said, uh, I want my boys to grow up as Americans. And my dad, uh, he backed down and uh, that's the way we went. That's that's the direction we went. We, he stayed here, and we boys grew up as Americans. And so your dad went to Madison College, which is the Weimar College of today, similar, self-supporting school. Mm. Two years before Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. what divine providence. And when he went to Madison, there is a a doctor there, a professor. Dr. Oh, Perry, very good. Dr. Perry Weber, who was yes. the president of... Tokyo Adventist College, I believe. Can mm-hmm. you tell us what he did during the time of Japanese internment during World War II? Yeah, uh, he was uh, Perry Weber's right-hand man. In fact, uh, interesting thing about Perry Weber is that he was truly a man of God because, uh, you know, as ugly as uh, as the, the circumstances were about with Japanese Americans getting sent to concentration camps. I mean, I'm saying concentration camps because that's exactly what they were. The American uh, military had a way of euphemizing these camps. Instead of calling them concentration camps, they called them relocation camps. 
you know, or internment camps, which is, you know, kind of a slap in the face of all these people that were put behind, behind barbed wire and they just subsist on uh, pennies a day, you know, and not getting paid for any of their work. But uh, I, I digress. Um, my father was Perry Weber's right hand man, and Perry Weber had a had a uh, a mission to go to the camps and ask for an audience with the young people who are of college age or just graduating from high school, and he offered them an opportunity to go to college, get a college degree. And even if they had no money, they could work through college by doing all kinds of different jobs at the school. And, uh, of course, many kids jumped at this chance, and they jumped on board. They were not Adventists, but, man, I mean, who wouldn't want to do that rather than being incarcerated behind barbed wire for who knows how long? So they all jumped on board, and uh, Perry Weber, he was a fantastic man. He had a sympathy towards Japanese because, like you mentioned, he he was uh, involved in the educational process there in Japan for many years. And he did not see Japanese as being the enemy. He didn't see them as being uh, somehow not able to be trusted like the uh, rest of the nation believed. He believed that they had... uh, a lot to offer, not only the school, but uh, all of America. And so he would go to these different camps, and my dad would drive his big car, and uh, sometimes uh, Perry Weber's wife would go along on these trips to the camps, and they would uh, tell the kids, you know, about what they could make out of their lives. And, of course, the kids went for it. And and um, Perry Weber is responsible for so many SDA families now that are Christian. Uh, you know, they're generational Christians because of the going dating all the way back to these camp trips that Perry Weber made. I think he's a fantastic man. So in the midst of heightened patriotism, some would say nationalism, mm-hmm. Dr. Weber did not go with the mainstream current and just held on to his belief of loving his neighbors as himself. Is that correct? Exactly. You know, and he, he did a fantastic job of of creating a uh, a happy environment for these kids, you know, <laughs> college kids, because I have photos my dad took uh, of the uh, watermelon parties and, and the school um, activities that they would have all in a group. And they're all laughing. They're all having a great time you know, while they're studying at school and college, and uh, they have Perry Weber to thank for that. Now, your mom's side, how does she become Adventist or her family become Adventist? That's a good story. Um, Okay, when the Japanese-Americans were first uh, rounded up, uh, they didn't take them directly to the camps. They had to, the camps, they were still, uh, the United States War Department was still building the camps when they were rounding up uh, about April, late April, I think it was, of 1942. So they had to have a, some kind of staging area where they could keep the uh, Japanese-Americans until the camps were actually built. <laughs> it was built so fast and so uh, haphazardly that they had to go to places like Tanforan up in Northern California and down in Southern California, uh, the Santa Anita Racetrack. 
uh, or they kept where they had horses. So they they cleaned out the horses and they put the people in horse stables that were freshly redolent with horse manure. You know, imagine that <laughs> trying to sleep while you're breathing the dung of horses. But that's what they were made to do for a few months, maybe three or four months. I could be wrong about that, but uh, somewhere in that zone, it was less than half a year. They had to stay there until the camps were finally finished. Then at that point, they moved to the camps. But while they were in the Santa Anita racetrack, my mom's family, they heard a man preaching who was also incarcerated like they were, but he was preaching about Jesus Christ. That man's name was um, Okuhira. Last name was Okuhira. And uh, he's a giant also amongst uh, Japanese Americans because he he spread so many seeds of hope in a hopeless situation. And many people can thank him for getting their spiritual life started in the Christian church. Um, Elder Okuhira uh, eventually became the pastor of the Japanese Central Church in East L.A., Boyle Heights. But uh, his family is a legacy. They, they comprised the Hokama boys who had uh, have a great set of kids that, that work hard for the church. And they love God tremendously. He's got many jewels in his crown, for sure, because he brought a lot of people to Jesus Christ. So your mom was converted during the detention crisis, is that correct? Yes, I think so. He made a lot of friends there that were also receptive to Elder Okuhira's message, and uh, including my grandfather and my grandmother. They were hearing the same sermons and uh, testimony from him. So that was a big start. My mom and her family went to uh, Rower, Arkansas. And uh, that's where, and since my dad was in um, uh, Madison, Tennessee, that was pretty close to Arkansas, where they would visit frequently and, and in, uh, with uh, Perry Weber. And uh, they would bring a, uh, a carload or a couple carloads of new recruits to college. So that was a very active period in my father's life, too, in helping out with the uh, incarcerated. Was there an Adventist worship gathering in the camp in Arkansas? That's a good question. You know, at the very beginning, they discouraged that kind of stuff. But as the uh, years rolled on, they got the administration at these camps got a little more lax, and they got a little more liberal with the... with their, with their rules, and uh, I believe so. I believe there were uh, Sabbath meetings in church, things like that. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I'm sure there were, yeah. Do you know of any Nisei Adventists that joined the United States military during this time, maybe the 442nd? Oh, yeah. I have uh, three uncles that did, uh, and they got the blessing from my grandfather, you know, he, if it was, if it was any kind of blessing, it was a tacit blessing. It was like, well, if that's what you want to do, <laughs> but I'm sure he didn't he would savor the, the thought that uh, they might be killed or maimed. But uh, yeah, my uncle 
um, first of all, Uncle Sam, he was the eldest boy in uh, my in, in amongst my mother's siblings. And then um, my Uncle Arvin, I think he was the fourth born along the line. My, my mother had seven siblings. And then um, uh, another uncle, not a blood uncle, but through marriage, my uh, auntie Amy married Richard Akutagawa. And Richard had a brother named uh, Tsuyoshi. And Tsuyoshi uh, also he volunteered to go into the anti-tank corps of the 442nd and the 100th Battalion. And so he spent his time blowing up tanks. <laughs> uh, my Uncle Arvin became a sergeant in the, in the 442nd. And my uh, Uncle Sam, unfortunately, while he was uh, already in the Army, he developed uh, kidney failure. And he had to come back home, and he, he got a uh, medical discharge, so he never saw action. But he did die about a year or two after that, after being diagnosed with a kidney failure. And then I have my uncle in Japan, uh, Nobuo Tatsuguchi, who was, uh, who was an officer. Uh, so I had four members of my family that were actively involved in um, the military. How do you feel the church's response to the internment crisis was, the Seventh Avenue Church, with its Japanese-American members? You know, I know one thing. There were only two very actively involved churches uh, that were trying to help the people, the Japanese-Americans during that time. One was the Quakers, uh, the Quaker Church, and the other was the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I, I can't thank them enough for for helping out with people's lives at that time, for for not backing down from the government, you know, who, who are trying to paint the Japanese-Americans as somehow co-saboteurs with the Japanese, the nation of Japan. John DeWitt, he was the... Uh, director of, of all these camps, war relocation authorities, he said, a Jap's a Jap. They're all going to betray the United States in one way or another. So, you know, with the man at the helm of the war relocation authority and and and, and the philosophy like that, you know, it, it's a hopeless, hopeless thing for these Japanese in the camps to think they're ever going to see the light of day again. And it's Seventh-day Adventist Church, I, uh, you know, was instrumental in, in counter, countering that philosophy and saying, no, no, this this is going to work out for you, because uh, if you trust in God, then, then he promises to bring you through to the other side. And that gave them a lot of hope, of course. And um, my mom was at uh, the Roar camp. There was another camp just... Uh, a few miles away, I think 30 miles away, it was called Jerome, Arkansas, War Relocation Authority. And there was a man there. I wish I could remember his name. But you could look it up. Uh, he was only 24 years old. And he, he was so 
uh, wrapped up in depression over this whole thing about about being thrown into incarceration without any um, proof of anything, any wrongdoing. And he was got so hopeless there that he snuck out of camp to the railroad and he took off his hat. And as the uh, train approached, he laid down on the tracks with his head over the rail and the rest of his body pointing away from the tracks and killed himself with the oncoming train. And there are photographs of his head dismembered from his body, and and it's really um, it's really kind of sh- uh, it shakes you up because you you have to think what kind of hopelessness could anybody feel to make them lie down on a track as a train is coming, take off his hat and calmly put his head over the rail and put his life away, you know that's the kind of that's the kind of mood. That was in camp, and a lot of people made it through, but some did not. Well, thank you very much, Ken, for sharing your story. Wave calleth unto wave at the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. I just want to say that uh, if, just like Psalms, uh, if it, at first it seems like there's no way out of the situation. There's no way that you're going to be able to live through a certain situation. You got to think again, because God has proven himself time after time that he can deliver us out of the pits of hell and still come out on top. Ken, thank you so much for sharing your story. We're greatly blessed by this testimony of what the church has done and what your family members have done in the midst of crisis to stand up for the truth. Uh huh. You're welcome. I want to add some closing thoughts to this episode. The Seventh Avenue Church has both triumphed and failed in a time of crisis for marginalized peoples. The pioneer founders of the church, such as Joseph Bates, James and Ellen White, J.N. Andrews, Uriah Smith, were on the right side of history as many were part of the abolition and temperance movement and advocated for racial equality. During the time of Jim Crow, Edson White bravely ministered to the African-American communities in the Deep South, building up schools and churches under the threat of death. During the era of American imperialism, E.A. Sutherland and A.T. Jones denounced the expansion of the United States in the Pacific and its hypocritical Christian motives that cloaked the eugenics mentality of civilizing the so-called savage natives to Western civilization, bucking the mainstream current of hypernationalism that engulfed that time period. And during World War II, we see powerful testimonies in both Japan and in the United States that loyalty to the worldwide church took precedence over the nationalism that engulfed the nations. For a Seventh Avenue pastor in Japan to tell the imperial Japanese government that they will lose the war, even though when Japan was gripped in a religious zeal to conquer Asia and the Pacific, shows us that this pastor's patriotism was to God's church. The sad counterpoint was in Germany, where the Seventh Avenue Church in Germany succumbed to nationalism and collaborated with Nazi Germany. And for both laity and leadership in the Seventh Avenue Church in the United States, and advocate for its Japanese American members, at the height of anti Japanese hysteria, shows that their patriotism was upon the kingdom of heaven. And the church membership was not swayed by the media at that time that demonized those of Japanese descent. In fact, in a fall 2009 article 
from Andrews University's Focus magazine, Sam Yoshimura, a graduate of Madison College and the founder of Sam's Chicken, shared that Madison College hid their Japanese students in the campus cornfields when federal authorities were looking for them. You also had E.F. Constantine, former president of then La Sierra College and then Union College, who pleaded with federal officials to have Seventh-day Adventist Japanese-American internees freed from the detention camps to go to school at Union College. Although the church in North America did not succumb to the hatred towards Japanese-Americans during World War II, sadly towards African-Americans it was a different story. It is here when African-Americans sought for the rightful place as full equals for full integration of the Seventh Adventist Church and its facilities were rejected and instead was given the alternative of regional conferences. And in the midst of this sad and complicated picture of race relations at this time, there is a piece of the puzzle that was noble because its patriotism was placed upon the kingdom of heaven. A.T. Jones once wrote, patriotism, then being love of one's country and the heavenly country being the Christian country, Christian patriotism is nothing else than love of the heavenly country. Perhaps what best captured the spirit of the church during the 1940s was shared by General Conference President Elder J. L. McElhaney. In the General Conference session of 1946, he states in his presidential address, one of the post-war problems that will face the people of all nations is the spirit of extreme nationalism, which is perhaps one of the consequences of a world war. But with the people of God scattered throughout all the nations of earth, there must be continually a spirit of unity. The hearts of men of all nations and races must be drawn together in a common love for one another and in a united purpose to maintain the unity of the faith. This will come through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of men everywhere. When we learn from our past history so we could stand and fulfill God's calling in the present to declare the everlasting gospel to all the world.